would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we'll consider together verses 11 through 21. We mentioned at a number of points along the way that you have to be careful of chronology in the book of Revelation. In other words, John is not overly interested in a neat, careful, chronological presentation of the events described in the book of Revelation. In fact, the vision that John receives, the vision recorded in the book of Revelation, is not presented, it seems, by vision in a neat, orderly, chronological manner. The interest here is not to say this is what every detail of the future will hold, but to embolden the church that come what may, Christ is Lord. That in spite of what is constantly being fed, Christians in Asia Minor, in those seven churches, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And that there is always for us in the gospel the hope of a bright and blessed tomorrow. The book is given to us as a means of shoring up our confidence in the truth of the gospel. Demanding of, of us that we hold fast to the very end, confessing the truth of the gospel, the lordship of Jesus over all of our lives. We've stressed this chronology issue throughout the book. In fact, one of the key aspects of really understanding Revelation is realizing that what John does in those cycles of seven judgments is to bring us right up to the brink of the end before circling back and in many ways covering the same ground again with greater depth or intensity. Locating the passage that we're going to consider this morning is going to be really beneficial to you in understanding what remains for us in the book of Revelation. It may not have tremendous bearing on our study this morning, but if you have properly located chronologically the passage that we're going to be looking at, it's going to make chapter 20 much, much easier for you. What I will contend for is that all, although these verses have a very futuristic tone at certain points, the future is deeply rooted in what Christ has done for us in the past. For instance, we have just come away from chapters 17 and 18, which cover the fall of Babylon. And we said in futuristic language, Babylon will fall. Babylon of the past and Babylons of the present. And any Babylon that arises in the future will fall under the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. But there is also a very real sense in which we might say with, with decidedness that Babylon has fallen. The victory of Jesus has been secured. It is not that Jesus is coming back to get victory. It is that Jesus has victory and he is yet coming again. The fall of Babylon is something deeply rooted in the past. Babylon's fate was sealed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' victory over death, hell, the grave, the dragon, the beast, the kings of the earth is not something that is yet to come in the future. It is something secured for us in the sacrifice of his life and his victory in resurrection. In short, the victory has already been won. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 takes us all the way back to the moment Christ took the scroll in Revelation 4 and 5. In fact, within the structure of Revelation, the parallel passages to Revelation 19 are Revelation 4 and 5. 
chapter 4, there is an emphasis on the throne room of God. There is God seated on the throne of heaven, and he is worthy to be worshipped. And the chapter ends and a transition is made into chapter 5 with this looming question, who is worthy to take the scroll held in the right hand of the Father and to loose its judgments? John says, I wept because no one was found to be worthy until there is one recognized as a lamb slaughtered standing between the 24 elders and the throne of God. And all of heaven exults, he is worthy. This is the other side. What happens as a result of Jesus' worthiness to take and to open the scroll? Revelation 19, 11 through 21 tells the story. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. The Bible says here, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing on the sun. And he cried out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come and gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. And I saw the beast, kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner. And along with him, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There is, again, this moving back and forward in our passage, past to present, future to past. What I, what I want you to see here is, is big picture, a hope-filled future for the church rooted in the history of what God has done for us through his son Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In addition to this moving back and forth between the past and present, the future and the past, key emphasis, a point that is stressed in these verses, is the contrast between Jesus and the petty tyrants of this world. Jesus is instructing the churches of Asia Minor as to how they are to interact with, and, and even in some ways to stand in opposition against the rulers of this world, Domitian specifically, the emperor of the Roman Empire during the first century, the period of time in which the book of Revelation is written but also the lesser provincial leaders within the Roman Empire who are themselves subject to Domitian in the capital city of Rome. How are we to regard the petty tyrants of this world 
who seek for themselves the acclaim, the worship, the adulation that only Christ is worthy to receive. There, there is a point of contrast between Jesus and these tyrants consistent throughout the verses we'll read. I'll show you several examples. In verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. Here we have Jesus featured as on a white horse. Many regard Jesus to be returning, riding a white horse. But I actually think the point is symbolic here. It's not to say that Jesus will literally return on a white horse. There are various reasons for that, not the least of which is that Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24 that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great glory. This is a thumb in the eye of Roman leaders who would return from their conquest riding a white horse in order to demonstrate that they have been on the conquest and they have conquered mightily. They enter into the province, they enter into the city and often enter into the capital city of Rome in great pomp and circumstance calling for the praise and adoration of their people. The fact that Jesus is featured here on a white horse is to say that he is what Roman emperors hope in their dreams to one day be. Jesus is in reality. What the petty tyrants of this world envision themselves to be and all the more, Jesus is. He's featured here as our all-conquering king riding on a white horse. He's referred to as faithful and true, yet another juxtaposition between Jesus and the tyrants of this world. They, they, they cast themselves, they frame themselves as faithful and true, as right, as just, as good, as, as bearing peace and prosperity in the empire. But what they hope to do on their best day, Jesus does and exponentially more without scarcely a thought. Its writer is called faithful and true, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. Consider yourself a citizen of Asia Minor in the first century, a member of one of those seven churches listed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Your friend has been killed, and the system of so-called justice within your country, within your society, does not afford for justice served to those who have murdered your friend. You've been cut out of the marketplace. You've been ostracized in your community. And the so-called system of justice within your society does not afford for your situation to be rectified or for justice to be served in any way whatsoever as it pertains to you. Not to mention the fact that if you belong to the right caste or the right class of society, it matters not what you do. A little bribery goes a long way toward ensuring that true justice is never served toward those even who violate the express command or law of the land. And here Jesus is described as coming, executing justice and judgment in truth, faithfully, and in righteousness. Not only does he judge in righteousness, but he is said here to make war in righteousness. There is scarcely a generation here who has not found itself in, engaged in some level of conversation about the justice of war, even within our own cultural context. The oldest among us, it was the nature of the Vietnam War, just or unjust. 
In my generation, it was the war in Iraq, just or unjust. But there can be no quibbling about the righteousness with which Jesus calls for war. He declares war with righteousness. Verse 12, the Bible says his eyes were like a fiery flame, as opposed to the limited insight and awareness of the rulers of the day. The fiery, flaming eyes of an all-seeing Jesus are completely aware of the very thoughts and inclinations of our heart, and he makes his judgment accordingly. He is said here to bear many crowns on his head. Remember back in Revelation chapter 12 when we were introduced to the dragon or the Satan imagery. He is said to have worn a crown with seven diadems or seven crowns, depending on the translation of those words. Later, the beast is said to wear seven crowns or a crown with seven diadems. But here, Jesus is merely said to wear many crowns. The petty authority of those earthly tyrants pales in comparison to the true authority of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Again, there's a point of contrast. The Bible says in the remainder of verse 12, he, he had a name written that no one knows except himself. I'm not entirely sure that I understand all that John intends in that reference, but I, I think I have a good clue. I think I'm on the right track. In the first century, name was power, whether it be in some kind of magical or mystery religion connotation or even within the biblical record, name. The idea of evoking a name was to evoke the power that lie behind that name. Think of the book of Acts. When the apostles were arrested, called before the Sanhedrin or the judicial authorities of the day, they, they were not charged that they could not preach. They were not charged that they could not teach. They were consistently admonished that they would not preach in Jesus' name. There was, a measure, there was understanding that the power was in the name of Jesus. Even within pagan religious practice, power, authority was assigned to a name, often a name used in something of an incantation to evoke the power of that God. Remember the story of Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts who wanted to purchase from the disciples their formula for incantation to evoke the power of Jesus' name. Later, the example of one who sought to evoke the power of Jesus' name, in this comedic moment in the Acts narrative, hell responds, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I don't know you. And he is pounced upon by those demons. It's a rather funny moment in the book of Acts. The idea of Jesus having a name which no one knows except himself is an apocalyptic way of saying there is a power that is exclusive to Jesus. There is a name, there is a power that is not known in Roman courts. These petty tyrants may evoke the names of their God, and they may believe themselves to operate under their power, but there is a kingly authority that is exclusive to Christ and to Christ alone. In verse 13, the Bible says he wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. John is playing on here the imagery of Isaiah 63, where, where a ruler, a messenger, a leader, a Messiah, 
comes from the region of Edom into the promised land and he cuts down opposition. He wears a white robe and the robe is stained with the blood of those who are cut down in his wake. Some have suggested that what John has done is to invert that imagery. That here Jesus is featured as coming wearing a white robe, bearing not the stains of the blood of his enemies, but the blood of his own sacrifice on the cross. Wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. In verse 14, the Bible says, The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. In all but one case, anyone wearing white in the book of Revelation are the saints of God who have died before. So Jesus is featured here as the leader, the general of a white horse riding army of those who have given their life for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We think of the people of God dying and going to heaven and sharing a common experience. But there is an exception to that in the book of Revelation. Special status, privilege of position is assigned to those who die not only in Christ, but who die for Christ. Even in the next chapter, John says, when I saw the throne, the next thing I saw were the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony as to the truth of the gospel. You know how to get close to the throne of God in heaven? Lay down your life for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At minimum, those who ride white horses, sharing in the the authority and the power of Jesus are those who have given the martyr's life for the advancement of the kingdom and their testimony as to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, the Bible says, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. Jesus' implement of war, his weapon for battle is the sword of his mouth. One of the first images that we're introduced to in the book of Revelation is this idea of Jesus with this sharp, double-edged sword that protrudes from his mouth. This is his weapon of war. And all over the book of Revelation, we have this martial military imagery. Everything reads as a battle. There's battle that abounds throughout the book of Revelation. Even the acts of God's direct judgment against the world are featured in militaristic terms. But this is not a military battle being described. Nor are there military battles described in other passages in Revelation. This is a war of words. And here's the battle. The battle is against the propaganda of the empire. Will you succumb to the propaganda of the day? Or will you hold fast to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you succumb to the constant indoctrination of the culture? Or will you persist in saying that Jesus, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord? This is the battle featured in the book of Revelation. I continue to be impressed week by week at the incredible relevance of the book of Revelation. You realize that the idea of a war of words, imperial propaganda versus the message of the gospel is an ongoing warfare we find ourselves in the throes of even at the present hour. 
We are living in a day and an age where what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. And you are making moment by moment, second by second, the decision as to whether you will be impressed by and swept away by the propaganda of the day or whether you will hold fast to the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways you're often unaware of, completely unaware of. We are being bombarded with the propaganda of this day and tested and tried as to whether or not we will hold fast to the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our efforts at rearing our children is all an effort at indoctrinating them with the gospel so that they will hold fast against the constant onslaught of unbelief that they would believe in the darkest of hours. They wouldn't just join a mass they could not defeat in the hopes of finding social acceptance and popularity. But even in isolation, even cut off from friends and community, they would hold fast to the truth of the gospel. There's so much that might be said here. And listen, I want you to be aware, Christian folk, listen, be aware that from the time your children come into this world, we, we have a culture around us that has tailored its techniques and its tactics toward indoctrinating your children with the propaganda of this day and wooing them away from the truth of the gospel. But I want you old heads to know that you and I are not exempt and in ways that are far more socially acceptable, regarded even as respectable, the older generations within our culture are just as much in the crosshairs of imperial propaganda as the least among us, indoctrinated in different ways, with different thoughts, with different ideas. Our children are more likely to be swept into this tide for social acceptance, to just say, can't beat them, let's join them, we'll go the direction of the cultural tide. You're far more likely to take up worldly weapons of war, therefore laying aside our greatest asset, which is the preaching of the gospel, and to render yourself ineffective for kingdom advancing purposes. None are exempt. All are in the crosshairs. And we're making a determination moment by moment and second by second as to which message we're going to yield to, the propaganda of the day or the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes not to actively engage in a literal war in the traditional sense, but to make his declaration of judgment by the word of his mouth. Jesus is not coming back to unsheathe a sword and begin to physically cut down his opposition. Don't you know that a God who has the power to hang the world on its axis with a word has the power to exact justice in a millisecond at the word of his mouth? Verse 16, the Bible says he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Back chapters ago now, we talked about that Mark of the Beast passage. It created quite a stir. What I contended, contended for there is that it was a numerological way of making reference to Nero. Nero was emperor of Rome in the 60s. Domitian, who's currently ruling at the time of Revelation writing, ruled in the 90s. And both were insane tyrants. 
In fact, there was so much similarity between the two of them that the mission was often regarded as Nero come again. And so what John is warning against is identification with the empire. Don't find your identification in the empire. Don't identify with the things of this world. Don't identify with the beast. It may get difficult for you. It may be hard for you. You may be cut out of trade and commerce. It may put your family in desperate straits. But do not identify with this world. A symbolic reference to the idea of worldly people identifying with the beast by virtue of what they think or believe and by virtue of their actions, a mark on their forehead and on their hand. In the same way, Christians are featured as being sealed by Jesus on their hand and on their head. Again, believing on Christ as the only begotten Son of God with our heart and our mind and acting upon gospel impulses because of the abiding presence of God's Spirit in our life. If you take the 666 of the mark of the beast and you run it through that numerological formula that results in the name Nero, you can take the name that is assigned to Jesus in Revelation 19, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and run it through that same formula. And what it results in is 777. This is yet another example of comparison and contrast between the tender mercies of our Savior, his true and legitimate authority as it bears itself out in this world in contrast to the harsh tyrants of this world and the petty power they've deluded themselves into believing they enjoy in the present. The true King of Kings and the true Lord of Lords is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the Bible says, I saw an angel standing on the sun And he cried out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come and gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. The idea here is that Jesus has overcome the world. All of his subjects succumb to his sovereign power. The sword of his mouth will cut them all down so that the birds of the air will gorge themselves on the flesh of those who succumb to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Here the contrast is not between Jesus and the dragon, Jesus and the emperor, Jesus and the beast. The contrast is between the fate of the church and the fate of the world. In the previous passage, we found the church enjoying at the return of Jesus, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Baptist world, that means gluttony without consequences. I imagine there are no calories in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the vast banquet that's laid before us at the return of our Savior Jesus. But the unrighteous of this world are invited to a banquet as well. Only the nature of their invitation is vastly different than that enjoyed by the church. They're invited not to dine, but to be dined upon. They are the main course for the birds of the air in this grotesque picture of the judgment that is to come. But I would contend that there is a past application of this passage as well. In just a moment, I'm going to demonstrate why I'm as confident as I am that this is speaking on a basis of past not exclusively future, certainly future implications, but primarily rooted in the past. If we were to understand 11 through 21 as exclusively past tense, which I don't think exclusive is the appropriate approach, 
do think past is largely in focus, we might see these verses as a description of the power of the gospel as the kingdom advances. We can somewhat despair and we can see things in rather grim light with regards to the world around us and what the future may hold. But make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing. The light of the gospel has always and will always dispel the darkness of this world. Kingdoms will succumb to the preaching of the gospel. Nations will succumb to the preaching of the gospel. Peoples will succumb to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus has overcome the world. This reads as a military conquest, but on some level this signifies the rapid advance and conquest of the kingdom of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Again, this is not a weapon of worldly warfare. This is a war of words, and the preaching of the gospel never returns void. Verse 19, the Bible says, Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner. And along with him, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Can I, can I just say to you, if, if you're here today without a saving relationship with Jesus, if there's never been a conscious decision to become a Christian in your life, if there's never, never been that moment in your life when God's Spirit grabbed a hold of your heart and you made a decisive faith commitment to break with the things of this world and to follow after Jesus, you, you, you are traveling a winding, aimless, endless road that will only end in frustration and anger. That's, I, 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 think, I think the real draw, the magnetism of the propaganda of our day is that it, it holds forth the promise of satisfaction and fulfillment. What is, what is the mantra of our day? Radical individualism, just let me do what I want. I just want to enjoy liberty and freedom. What harm could I possibly impose upon you by merely doing the things that I want to do? It's a, it's a, it's a narcissistic worldview. You know the problem with narcissism? Narcissism is so hungry to feed self-satisfaction that it eventually consumes itself. And here's my word of warning to you. You continue to pursue the lustful satisfaction of the desires of the flesh, and it will only leave you jaded and frustrated and unfulfilled. What you are looking for, though you don't know it now in all likelihood, what you are looking for can only be found in Jesus. And the propaganda of the empire is such good, clever marketing. Because not only does it entice you that your satisfaction may be found in indulging your freedoms and liberties, doing what you want to do, so to speak, it says at the same time, if you really want this puritanical, boring, dull, fruitless, unsatisfying life, then go over in that camp of folks we call Christians. 
And we don't always do the best at marketing the joy that we have and the faith once and for all delivered to the saints if we're being honest. The propaganda of, of this world, the culture, markets itself far more effectively often than the church does, failing to walk in the fullness of joy afforded us in Jesus. So I'm just telling you, you go on and do what you want to do. Now I want you to know, you heard it here first. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You cannot satisfy the lust of the flesh on the counterfeit fruit that this world is offering you. But if you'll come with a thirsty, unfulfilled heart and drink deeply from the fountain of the water of life, you'll find satisfaction eternal and joy immeasurable in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who have opposed him, all who have rejected them, they are cut down. They are ultimately, effectively killed. Verse 21 says, the rest were killed with the sword. And that beast, that dragon, that false prophet that you've pledged your allegiance to, whoever he is or she is, they're cast into the lake of fire and brimstone that burns with sulfur. It's a dead-end road that you're traveling. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. There are two ways to go. There is a broad path that's easily traveled, but it leads to destruction, and there are many who go thereby. And there's a narrow gate and a straight way. It's difficult at times to travel. And the nature of the gate itself does not afford for you to bring your baggage along. But the end thereof is life eternal, and there are few who find it. This passage reinforces that idea can't beat them, join them, is a losing proposition. You'll align yourself with an army that will succumb to the absolute lordship of Jesus only in judgment. There's a place for us in Christ. Listen, this is what I want you to see, church. This passage, although speaking of the hope we have for the future, is anchored tightly in what Jesus has already done in time past. I want us to back up to verse 13 and make a little observation that you may have overlooked. Jesus is said here to wear a robe stained with blood. But wait a minute. There hasn't been a fight yet. This is a military scene. But do you know what is conspicuously absent? A battle. This is the second time we've witnessed this in the book of Revelation. That famous Battle of Armageddon passage that Hollywood loves to make movies. And we love to write books about and think in our imaginations of what that might be. All the armies of the world called together. Do you know what is conspicuously absent in the Battle of Armageddon passage? A battle. And the point here is that the battle has already been fought. And the victory has already been won. And this affords us such assurance, such security as to what the future holds. History is a great indicator of what the future will hold. We learn over the course of our life to know what to expect on the basis of certain things that have happened in our past. Well, I have three sons. We're a sports family. We watch a lot of baseball this time of the year. Been a hard baseball season. My team stinks two years in a row. Have a lot of strong counsel for the coaching staff. If you know somebody, tell them to call. My phone in ringing. We watch and, we, and we, we, we make playful bets. 
This is how we watch sports. That may be hard for you to think about your Baptist preacher betting, but it's not real, right? And, 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 and so we'll watch the ball game and a leadoff walk in a game, leadoff walk. And I will say, I'll, I'll bet you he scores. I don't, I don't know why it's written into the Constitution of Baseball. It's just the way it happens. And so far, they owe me several million dollars. <laughs> Two-out walk, two-out air. There's a home run coming. How do you know? Because it's written into the Constitution of Baseball. It's just the way it happens. Two-out, three-run home run. Next batter will ground out inside of three pitches. They owe me millions of dollars. I know because of past experience. This is not some special insight that I enjoy. This is just you watch the game and these things happen in these ways. And it happens again and again and again. And scarcely ever is there any break from the historic pattern of 100 years of baseball. The assurance that we have in Jesus is similar yet dissimilar to that. Our security is deeply rooted in what we have observed in time past. Only unlike the game of baseball, there is no uncertainty whatsoever on the basis of past history what will happen now in the future. Do you know why I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus died on the cross. He was dead, and they buried him in a borrowed grave outside the city of Jerusalem, and he rose again. And I always listen to anyone who was dead for three days and rose again. <laughs> you know why I believe that the Bible is true? Because Jesus said it was, and he was dead for three days. And they put him in a grave, and he raised again. And I always listen to people who were dead three days and raised again. Our hope in the second coming of Jesus and the promise of heaven, the gift of eternal life, is firmly anchored in what God has done for us in times past. We may speak of the idea that Babylon will fall, but we can just as certainly speak of the assurance that Babylon has fallen. We may speak of the falling of the kingdoms of this world, but we may at the same time, with certainty in our hearts, speak of the reality that these kingdoms have fallen. Jesus is not coming back to get victory. Jesus has victory, and he's coming back to receive us unto himself and to purge the world of unrighteousness. We're not going to get eternal life because of something Jesus does in the future. By faith in him, we have eternal life because of what Jesus has done in the past. Our future is firmly established by what Christ has performed for us as our substitute on the cross and his vacating that garden grave in the victory of resurrection. The battle is already fought. Amen. One writer wrote, this war is the war of the incarnation. This war fought was fought with Herod the Great slaying the infants of Bethlehem. Archelaus being too brutal for Jesus' parents to remain in Judea, Satan's temptation in the wilderness, the exorcism of demons, the curing of diseases, the healing of the blind and the lame, the murderous opposition of Jewish leaders, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Roman crucifixion. This is a battle long since fought and a victory long since secured and today, by faith in Jesus, conferred unto us. This is good news. This is a warning to us. That we don't allow what we see with eyes of sight to overwhelm and subordinate what we know with eyes of faith. Because the messaging of this world, the 24-hour news cycle is saying consistently, we lose 
We lose. We lose. And it can feel as though Jesus has assigned to us a losing strategy. You go down to Books a Million today, you buy yourself a leadership book, you will not find Jesus' strategy for leadership. If you want to be the master of all, you must be servant of all. If you want to be first, you must be last. I mean, who, who's saying that, right? In, in, this, in this world, in this system, you elbow your way to the front. And you insist upon being heard. Your rights and privileges being observed. And, and for heaven's sake, you don't sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice your family in this world system to get ahead. But in the kingdom, you sacrifice yourself, yourself. You mean die? And the world would look at that. The world would observe that and say, well, he's dead now. And the church might be inclined to look at that person's experience and go, well, he's dead now. But this discounts altogether the power and the victory of the resurrection. We cannot lose. Heads we win. Tails we win. Because Jesus has secured for us the victory. Risk life and limb. Do not succumb to the propaganda of the day. Hold fast to the message of the gospel. Know with absolute assurance that Christ is coming again and that victory rests in him. Not on a hope and a whim, but because Jesus was dead for three days and he raised again. This is the teaching of our passage. A future hope that is deeply anchored in what God has done for us in history to redeem us a people all his own. And in his tender mercy, listen, in his tender mercy, not the harshness and severity of these petty tyrants in view in Revelation, but with tender mercy, he invites us, those who are weary and heavy laden, to come to him and to find our rest. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for the chance to give consideration to these verses in our time together. God, thank you that the victory is ours through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see the greatness and superiority of Jesus over anything that this world affords. Any petty tyrant, any world leader, any politician, any religious figure, any person of significance within the culture, any singer, songwriter, actor, any person that seems to possess a measure of influence, any athlete, God, Jesus is just better. Help us to see that what we have in him, what we find in him is by far superior to anything that this world can afford. Lord, correct us and convict us as you find us drinking from broken cisterns. Lead us back to draw from a fountain that flows with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. God, I pray that you would create in us by the power of your Holy Spirit and an awareness of our sin, a thirsty soul with which to drink from the fountain of the water of life. God, grant it so. In Jesus' name, amen.